Merry Christmas. I think we're in that season now that I can say that, right? And it's not uh, super awkward. Now uh, we got the Christmas trees up. Anybody not have the Christmas tree up yet? Okay, couple out there. That's okay. Still got a, still got a little bit of time. Anybody played the James Taylor Christmas album yet? That's the real. Anyway, I don't see any hands. Oh, oh there's a couple. Okay. I've uh, said to my staff multiple times that there's two people in the world, uh, some who appreciate good music and those that don't. So I'll let you figure out which one you are. Uh, okay, that did not uh, go very well. Uh, before we jump into the sermon uh, this morning, I just want to highlight a date coming up in January. We have a uh, set free retreat that's happening on January 27th and 28th, and this has uh, been something we've been planning, trying to plan actually pre uh, pre COVID, and so it's been a long time in coming, um, and it's been a major part of uh, our vision and strategy of what we feel like God is calling us to as a faith community, um, and we want to just make sure it's on our collective calendars uh, and that you are able to block off uh, that weekend, um, and that's a Friday night, a Saturday up until uh, supper time. And uh, this is, uh, yeah, our core for at SunWest is to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Uh, and so how do we live with freedom? There's people that have been following Jesus for a long time that still feel quite stuck. Um, maybe they've hit a ceiling in their growth as a follower of Jesus. Uh, maybe they're struggling with the same things they've been struggling for years. Uh, church history has, and the Bible, has given us tools uh, for a- actually how to walk in greater freedom. Uh, and this is going to be in a, a weekend to empower you to do that. Uh, it's going to be filled with some practical pieces and some teaching, uh, and we're really, really looking forward to that. We've been planning it uh, now here over the last couple months, uh, and so I want to encourage you all, even right now, to take out your phones to block off that weekend, uh, to plan on attending if you call SunWest Home, and even if you don't, uh, we would invite you to do that. Uh, there are, we've invited some other churches as well to join us on this weekend uh, here on site. Uh, so we just want to highlight that for you. You'll be hearing more about that uh, in coming weeks. Uh, so four Christmases, this is the series that we are uh, continuing. We're on week three. We got one more week next week. Uh, And we've been looking at four perspectives in the biblical story, in the narrative, uh, that experience Christmas in different ways. We all experience Christmas in different ways. And for some of us, we really look forward to Christmas. For others, we dread uh, Christmas for various reasons. And some years are different than other years. Uh, But we all have a certain perspective, certain eyes that we look at the Christmas story and the Christmas season with. And this was no different than the first Christmas scene. Uh, Many people experience the event differently. Uh, and so we're looking at this story from f- uh, four different perspectives. And particularly, we're paying attention to uh, a principle within these four perspectives uh, uh, that we find in John 2. Uh, so in John 2, it says, Now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so often in church, we talk about faith in God. And rightfully so. The Bible talks a lot about faith in God. Uh, But do we ever think about God's faith in us? We talk about trusting God, but do we think about, are we the type of people that God trusts? And we see here in John 2 uh, that there's a certain type of person Uh, that God entrusts himself to, entrusts his presence, his relationship, his, uh, you know, level of intimacy and relationship with, uh, understanding all the certain blessings, expectations, responsibilities. There's a certain type of person that God is actually entrusting himself to in certain ways and other people that he's not. And so even though here in John 2, some people were putting their trust in Jesus, he was not yet fully entrusting himself to them. Uh, And this verse has always kind of bothered me in a good way uh, because it has caused me to ask the question, uh, am I the type of person that God trusts? And what's the difference between um, those that God entrusts himself to and those that God doesn't? And if you start to look at scripture with those uh, lenses on, you can start to see similar characteristics of the type of people that God is using, that he's trusting, that he's giving responsibility to, that he is writing his story with. Uh, and who are those types of people? Uh, and so this should cause us to put up a mirror and say, am I that type of person? Uh, and I think very particularly and specifically in the Christmas story, we can see the characteristics of those type of people very, very clearly. 
There's some people that are right in the center of the Christmas story that God is using, that God is writing his story with, and they have particular characteristics. And there's other people that are actually on the outside of the story looking in um, who aren't participating in God's story and actually working against it. Uh, And so we're going to look at three positive examples of uh, the people that God entrusts himself to the first three weeks. And then the last week, we're going to look at... uh, the type of person that God withholds himself from. Uh, so the first week we looked at shepherds, and we had talked about how God entrusts himself to the simple. Again, not simple-minded, uh, but simple in the, in the way of humble, that shepherds represented this level of humility, this posture uh, that we're, we're ready to receive from God. And they're often seen at the lowest rung in society, uh, but God chose them to reveal himself to first and invite them to be a part of that nativity experience in that scene. Uh, we see Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father, who uh, showed us that God entrusts himself to the faithful. Uh, that Joseph, every turn when God actually asked something of him, he was his first response and his only response was yes. No matter what the journey looked like, no matter the implications of that, what that meant on how he might be understood by other people, his response to God was yes. And so God trusted him to actually take care of his son, uh, Jesus. Uh, and today we're going to look at the Magi. And we are going to look at the theme of how God entrusts himself to the seekers. Now, seeker, I looked at the definition of seeker, and this is seeker, to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective, strive for, aim at, or try to obtain, or desire, or wish for. Someone, something. So this is a seeker, is someone who has a certain aim, certain direction that they're striving they're seeking something. God entrusts himself to those people who are honestly seeking him. And so we pick up that in the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the, <clears throat> and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. Then they saw the star and they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasures and, present, and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so we're looking particularly at the Magi in the story. And again, uh, the, the theme, the characteristics we're paying attention to is that God entrusts himself to seekers. Uh, and I see this message uh, this morning uh, as being for three groups of people. Uh, one, for those who are here that are maybe searching and asking questions, you're not sure about Christianity, if it's real, if it's true. Uh, I pray that this message would be an encouragement to you. Uh, a second group, for those who maybe grew up uh, with Christianity, or you've been around church for some time, uh, and you're seasoned in your faith, but you find yourself in a season of doubting and questioning, and you're not sure what you believe anymore. And there's a third group, uh, those who maybe have a tight grip on exactly what they think, and what they, they know what is right, but yet they find themselves unchanged, even though they believe the right things. You find yourself just as angry, frustrated, bitter, unforgiving as you ever have, even though you've maybe for a long time believed certain things. So before we get going, which group are you in? Maybe it's none of those three. Um, And I trust that the Holy Spirit can speak to you as well. Uh, But maybe uh, maybe you can identify with that first group. You're not sure what you think about Jesus, about Christianity. 
maybe you find yourself in a, a season of doubting and questioning things that you've believed for a long time. Um, or maybe you're just more uh, even firm and secure in what you believe, but yet you find yourself in your heart being hardened. I think the Magi have a, a good word for us. Uh, so when we look at it, verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked this question. So the Magi were a group, it's the Greek word magoi, uh, which uh, is describing a group of people. We don't know exactly where they came from. Uh, you know, different scholars uh, think different different things, but but the consistent theme remains that they, came, they come from a, a pagan uh, nation area uh, that are outside of the scope of where God's people have been, where the Jewish, uh, where the Israelites people have been. And so uh, many people maybe think Babylon or somewhere out east, but they're coming from the east to God, to the, the promised land where the Israelites are. And so they were, they were pagan. They probably didn't really know about the story of God. Uh, we, we know that they are referred to uh, f- from the from the original language, what we're, they're referred to as astrologers. Uh, they're, they're people that study the stars. This is probably tied to their pagan religions and belief systems. Um, and they are watching the sky, believing that God is revealing something to them in the sky, whoever God is or whatever God they were looking for. Uh, and so they're mystical people. Uh, they're, they're searchers, they're wonderers, they're questioners. And they're looking to the sky, and they're looking for understanding, and they're looking for answers, uh, maybe to questions they don't even know they have. But they're, they're wandering, and they're searching, and this kind of characterizes who they are. Uh, and so we find in the story that the truth that the yearnings, even of those who do not know fully what they seek, or the questions that they're asking, are found in the person of Jesus. There's a, that Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. There's a line in it that says, The hopes and fears of all the years are found in thee tonight. And I think we see that in the Christmas story through the Magi, that the hopes and fears of humanity are actually found and answered in the person of Jesus. And so Magi, they're, they're these wandering astrologers. They're not kings. I know we sing the song, We Three Kings. Uh, they weren't kings. That's not what they were. Uh, but they were astrologers. They were, they were a religious people from a pagan uh, world and understanding who were searching for God, and they found themselves following a star. And it says, when we saw the star, when it rose and... Uh, Sorry, when we saw his star, when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so this word uh, worship uh, means to become prostrate. That's what the, the, it's a posture word. When we think worship, we often think about singing songs, and that can be a form of worship. But the word itself is actually talking about a certain posture, which is kneeling and getting down, and bending your knee, which represents actually changing your life to follow or submit to authority that is bigger and beyond yourself. So the Magi didn't know the Bible, uh, didn't know the story of God, uh, yet they were honest seekers, honest questioners, and found themselves coming towards the nativity scene where the king of the Jews was going to be born, and they came with intent to bend their knee, to become prostrate, and to submit their lives to this king with limited understanding. And it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. So chief priests, teachers of the law. So these are significant people. Chief priests, this is the high priest. This is the top of the food chain in the religious structure of the time. Uh, This isn't just a lead pastor. This is like a you know, denominational leader, like a leader of multiple churches, in, you know, just to parallel it to our time. Uh, this is a, a big deal person, big deal people. And then we have teachers of the law, which are your, uh, which are your elite uh, people that were entrusted to teach the Bible to the people. Uh, and so teachers of the law, the chief priests, they would have known their Bibles at the time, inside and out, uh, what, what they refer to as the Torah. And so if you look at our Bibles... 
We have the New Testament, Old Testament, um, and which is divided by the Christmas story. And so chief priests, teachers of the law, they knew the first part of our Bibles better than any of us, guaranteed. Their whole educational system was built on them understanding and memorizing this part of our Bibles. So all of this, they would have basically known by memory. Okay, so uh, these guys are a big deal. They know their Bibles, and so we contrast that to the Magi. Magis didn't know anything. They probably weren't even aware there was a Torah. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the story of God. And then we have the chief priests, teach of the law, that came out of God's people who God had entrusted the word with, and they knew their Bibles inside and out. And so when Herod came to them, so he's like, if I want to know where this king of the Jews is going to be born, what was prophesied about him, who am I going to ask? Well, obviously I'm going to ask the chief priests, teach of the law, the guys that know everything. Uh, so let's ask them. And they tell him he's going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. And so they, they refer to uh, Micah 5 verse 2, which says, for this is what the prophet has written, but you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So get this, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, knew in their minds exactly what God had in mind, what he was going to do. The Magi didn't know any of that, but they were honest seekers. And one of those two groups ended up at the feet of King Jesus, and one of those two groups didn't. God gave the Magi a star to guide them to Jesus, and they followed that star honestly, earnestly, with the intent of bending their knee towards the king that they found. God also gave a certain type of star to his own people, his word, his Torah word. And the point of that word was actually to bring them also to the feet of Jesus to worship him. The whole point of our scriptures is actually to point us to Jesus. God had given them a star as well. But even though they knew the star, even though they observed the star, even though they memorized that star, they didn't follow it. The difference between the Magi and the chief priests and religious leaders were the Magi moved from observation to participation regardless of how much they intellectually knew. The religious leaders never moved from observation to participation. Which brings us to this biblical concept of faith. And it's a word we use all the time. It's a word I talk about quite a bit uh, because I think it's important to understand what are we talking about when we talk about faith. And distinguishing faith from beliefs in, in terms of how we use those two words, is critically important. Because what we see in the Magi is a group of people that demonstrated faith. Even though they didn't have right beliefs, even though they didn't have right intellectual understanding. It is possible to have right beliefs and not be a follower of Jesus. It is also possible to have wrong beliefs and be a follower of Jesus. We struggle with this idea in our Western minds, but we see this bearing itself to be true in God's word. Uh, even uh, in the New Testament, when you pay attention to who was the first to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, if I'd ask the question, who would you say? Often we say Peter, right? Uh, when Jesus asks, who am I? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed you. Are you Peter? Uh, but Peter was actually not the first voice in the New Testament to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the demons were. The demons knew that Jesus was the Messiah. The demons knew and spoke about how Jesus had power. The demons uh, knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, they had expressed this actually multiple times. And James actually explains this in his letter, and he warns us, and he says, uh, when he's talking about beliefs and faith, and he says, even the demons believe that there is a God and shudder. See, demons had good theology. 
Demons understand the truth of who God is and who Jesus is. When we look at the, the Christmas story, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they had good theology. They understood some truths about who God is intellectually in their heads. But having right beliefs, but no faith is a definite possibility, and we see that bearing itself out in the Christmas story. Having right beliefs and no faith is still a possibility. You can have right beliefs and not follow Jesus, or you can have wrong beliefs and still follow Jesus. The difference is faith. The chief priests and teachers of the law had right beliefs. We're going to talk about Herod next week, uh, so I don't want to get too much into it, but Herod had right beliefs. Herod knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why he wanted to kill him. Herod knew that the presence of Jesus meant something was going to change for him, and so he was threatened by it. And so there was a level of understanding and belief and faith, sorry, not faith, but understanding of who Jesus was, and that's why Herod, it says, was disturbed when Jesus showed up on the scene. And so faith is not talking about intellectual right thinking. It's not. Faith is the Greek word for pistis. Everybody say pistis. It's okay. I know it sounds like a bad word, but you can say it in church. It's okay. Uh, Faith is pistis. And and this word literally means to trust or to place your weight into something. And so I've used this example before, but I think it's helpful that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm afraid of heights. Uh, Full confession here. Uh, I hate heights. I hate, you know, climbing ladders. Uh, when we hang Christmas lights in our house, it's not me that does it. Um, it's not even my teenage boys that do it. It's my wife that does it. Uh, and she's been doing it for years. Uh, I can remember coming home one time and she was hanging out of her upstairs Christmas window. She was like seven months pregnant and she's like out, out of the window hanging our Christmas lights. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, well, you're not going to do it. I was like, well, that's true. Uh, I love you, but not enough to get on the ladder. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. Uh, and so I, I come face to face with this fear every time with my kids, we go to a climbing wall or something and it's like, dad, are you going to climb? And I'm like, Whoa, you know, you, your palms get all sweaty. And, uh, you know, I don't like climbing walls because I'm afraid of heights, but I also don't like the harnesses and what they do to my, uh, you know, how they, you know, nobody wants to see that. Uh, so <laughs> I can see And I can understand that the harness will hold me. I've seen way bigger guys than me on that wall, and it holds them. And they just, if they fall, they're safe. I can see and I can understand that. And so logically, it makes sense to me. But I'll tell you, something changes when I put on that harness. And it's not just the way I look, uh, but something changes to my belief in whether that harness will actually hold me. So my understanding is actually put to the, to, to the test, not until I get on the wall and not even when I'm on the wall, uh, cause sometimes I've gotten on the wall and then they're like, okay, when it's time to be done, they're like, what do they say? Sit back in the harness. I'm like, nope. You know, I'm the guy that like climbs back down the wall. Uh, why? Because intellectually I believe that it's going to hold me, but when it comes to reality, do I actually trust it? Do I, do I put my weight into it? Faith is the picture of actually putting your weight into it, believing that it's going to hold you. It is, uh, it is not an intellectual word. It is an action word. I believe the harness can carry me, but do I trust that the harness can carry me? The biblical idea of belief, when, even when the Bible uses the word belief, when you read it in our scriptures, it doesn't separate the idea of faith. Uh, but we have, in our time, in our culture, we've separated belief and faith. We believe it's, we, we talk about how it's possible to have a belief uh, but not have faith. But even the word believe is the verb pastuo. Everybody say pastuo. So just uh, this nerdiness will, will help, trust me. But the word pistis, right, is the noun means to put your trust into something. Uh, the word pastul is the same word in the verb form in the Greek language. So it, it's actually talking about the action of putting your faith into something. 
Uh, and so I find even though all of our English languages or all of our English translations translate this word, many of them translate this word as believe, uh, we don't read that word actually very well, I think. I think when we read believe, we, we're thinking intellectual belief. So when we read John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We think, for God so loved the world that whoever believes and thinks the right things and has the right doctrines about God will not perish. That's not what it's saying. For God so loved the world that whoever pastuo him, whoever places their trust in him, not the person that thinks that harness is going to hold me, but the person that actually takes action, gets on the wall, and when it was told to put your weight into it, they let go of the wall and trust that it's going to hold them. The person who pastuos him will not perish but have eternal life. The faith is a who word. It's not a what word. And we get that mixed up all the time. I get it mixed up all the time. We've misunderstood faith as a what word instead of a who word. And when you look at the Christmas story, pay attention to who journeyed towards the who. Who journeyed towards Jesus? Who responded in action towards what God was doing? Joseph and Mary, the shepherds, the angels, the magi, even God himself we see journeyed from heaven to earth. The journey people that were actually acting and moving in faith found themselves in the center of the Christmas story. Now, if you pay attention to the Christmas story, who are the static characters in the story that don't ever move, that, don't, that stay still? We see that they are Herod, who stays in his palace, and the chief priests and teachers of the law who don't move. And we've heard this phrase a lot, but maybe not in this way, but it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, but it's who you know. Faith is not a what word, it's a who word. And so all this uh, leads me to the idea of deconstruction. I just want to talk about this for a minute. You may have heard this word, you may not have heard this word, but it's a word that is uh, being used quite a bit, uh, almost exclusively in the Western world. Uh, And this is the phenomenon, particularly in the evangelical stream of Christianity, where people are deconstructing. um, And so I'll just read the definition of it. It says, faith deconstruction, also known as deconstructing faith, um, or simply deconstruction, is a phenomenon within American evangelicalism, which Christians rethink their faith and jettison previously held beliefs, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as Christians. And so this is a phenomenon that's happening uh, very uh, you know, en masse, I would say, in the Western world. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons why this is happening. Uh, I think we have fundamentally misunderstood what faith is. Um, but deconstruction is actually a part of developing faith. And it has, all the way since the time of Jesus, been a part of developing faith. Uh, We've just forgotten uh, how to actually deconstruct well. Uh, And so the the cycle of faith has always looked like a level of construction, a level of deconstruction, and then another stage of reconstruction. This is always, always, always the cycle of faith. If it wasn't the cycle of faith, uh, then we would be God and God would not. The fact that God is God or that we are not means that there are things that we don't understand. There's questions that we have. There's doubts that you're going to wrestle with. There's there's a limited perspective you're always going to have, which will always lead us to a place of rethinking what we thought. This is not new. The disciples, if, if you read the Gospels, you see the disciples do this over and over again. Who is this man? What is happening? You know, Jesus said this. What did he mean by that? Uh, I thought this, Jesus, the Messiah, was going to mean this, and that now it means this, and then you're going to die, and then what's going to happen? Like, they are constantly encountering God through Jesus and having to rethink everything they already thought. But many people in our time don't make it to the stage of reconstruction and don't continue that cycle of faith and growth and maturity. And why is that? One of the reasons is, I think, like I said, I think we've equated faith with intellect. So when we start questioning things we've always thought in our heads, we actually believe we're losing our faith. But if faith is a who word and not a what word, then have we really lost our faith? See, doubt is not an enemy of faith. It's only an enemy of faith if we equate faith with certitude. 
And we, we equate faith with certitude if we think that faith is a what word instead of a who word. And so I think we actually need, need to rediscover that faith is about trusting and following even, to, even in light of my questions, in light of my doubts, in light of whatever I might be wrestling with in my mind, in my heart, and what's going on in our world. Faith is a trust word, an action word, a movement word. It's not a what I think word. I think on top of that, we might believe that following Jesus, uh, to quote uh, Lloyd, is that everything is always awesome. That was a Lego reference um, for those that missed it. Uh, everything is awesome. Uh, we, we sometimes believe that following Jesus means that everything is awesome. And I'm not sure where we've gotten that idea, that following Jesus will make my life better, will make my life more comfortable, um, True, will bring you joy, yes. Will bring you peace, yes. Will bring you the fruits of the Spirit that are beyond circumstances, absolutely. But we have actually bought into maybe this lie, and it's unique to the Western world, again, uh, that following Jesus means that everything in my life always gets better and better and better. And so when we grow up believing that in our heads and then in our experience, we actually find struggle and pain and grief and loss. It's, it's this idea of God that I put my belief into that doesn't re- actually line up with my reality. I don't know if I believe that anymore. Sometimes Jesus, following Jesus, causes pain and suffering. Jesus told us to pick up a cross and follow him, and I'm not sure where we got the idea that that was going to be a comfortable journey. The first disciples all except one, got martyred for their following of Jesus. We have lots of templates and people throughout history and in the biblical story to look at that those who walked in faith, things did not always go well for them, but they had a belief and a trust that Jesus was greater than death, than the grave, than the suffering, than the pain, and was worth giving our life to. And so we've bought into an idea that If I follow Jesus, my life is going to get comfortable, it's going to get better, and it's just going to be, this experience is going to go up and up and up and up. Not to say we don't have mountaintop experiences, this is a whole, that's a whole nother sermon. Uh, But hear what I'm saying, that following Jesus will mean that we experience pain and suffering. Following Jesus does not exempt us from pain and suffering. And when you experience pain and suffering, disappointment, it does not mean that Jesus didn't follow through on what he promised you. It might mean that what you believed wasn't quite accurate. Maybe your expectations weren't met. Second, I believe that people don't often get to the stage of reconstruction because the motive of deconstruction matters. The principle here is that we find what we're seeking. Whatever you're looking for, you will be able to find somewhere. And so if you're looking for reasons to be angry, you will find reasons to be angry. If you're looking for reasons to be critical, you will find lots of reasons to be critical. If you're looking for reasons to kind of stay in your unforgiveness and your hurt, you will find, always find reasons to stay there. But if you're honestly seeking Jesus and the presence of God, I believe, and the Bible promises that you will find it too. God entrusts himself to those who honestly seek him. And so I think people don't often make it from deconstruction to reconstruction because they're not actually interested in reconstruction. They're not as interested in finding the presence of God as they are in justifying where they are and what they already think. And I believe that actually God, and please hear this in the spirit that is meant in, plays a game constantly of hide and seek with us. Another principle in scripture we see that God often has levels of distance from us because he is inviting us onto a journey. That not everybody will have the eyes to see or ears to hear because not everybody is interested in actually seeing or hearing. Not everybody actually engages in the journey. And if you think of the game of hide and seek, you know, when I played it with my kids, we used to play it all the time. When they were little, um, now, I, you know, now that they're like 16, uh, I try and get them to play with me. They're not as interested. Uh, but when they were little, we played it all the time. 
And it was, it, always, it was always a mystery to me. I'm like, don't they understand the rules of this game? I'm like, let's play Isaac. I count to 10 or 20 or whatever. Uh, and then I go downstairs, and I'd be like, bet you can't find me, Dad. <laughs> you know, they're, they're giggling in the corner, or they're shaking something, or they're knocking on something. Um, you know, they, they just wanted to be found. That was the game. And then I'd go hide, and then I'd hide, you know, in the corner behind something, and I'd whistle, um, you know, when they can't find me. Why? Because I actually wanted them to find me. I actually remember one game, uh, my, my kids were playing with neighbor kids, and I think one of my kids was hiding in the garage somewhere. They're playing in the neighborhood, uh, and their friends decided not to keep playing. <laughs> and just for, like... I don't know how long it was, way too long. My kid's just like hiding out in the rafters in our garage, and he was just there. Um, and that's no fun for anybody when, when the people that are seeking stop seeking, right? Um, but I, I think God actually does this with us to help us on our journey in spiritual growth. He, he doesn't hide from us because he wants to be hidden. He hides from us because he wants us to move. And we experience times of hiddenness in our lives, times of a sense of distance, time of a sense of, God, where are you? And if you read the disciples throughout history, they write often about this, that there's times when they feel very close, they feel God's spirit with them, and then there's times where they know that God is with them in their heads, but experientially, they feel like God is distant. If you read the Psalms over and over again, over and over again you'll see David struggling, God, where are you? But then David rejoicing, because of what God has done. This is the cycle of faith. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't go from deconstruction to reconstruction, but um, let's be honest about the motives. Uh, When we're doubting and we're questioning, do we actually care about finding Jesus, or do we mostly care about being set in our beliefs and experiences and not wanting to change? Because then we're more in the company of Herod and the chief priests and the teachers of the law than we are in the company of the Magi. The Magi honestly sought Jesus. But the others didn't want to change anything about their lives, anything about their beliefs, anything about their nice construction of ideas that they read about in the Bible. Or when we look at King Herod next week, we'll see he he, he didn't want his power and his prestige to be threatened. So why do we stop seeking maybe painful experiences, unmet expectations? We don't want to change. We're most interested in being right than we are about being, uh, than than what's true. Uh, And maybe somebody will ask, well, what about science and logic and people that, you know, have these, you know, big, you know, scientific, logical questions about God? I mean, that's a great question. But I, as a pastor, and I've been pastoring for 18 years, I've never met anybody, even in our scientific and logical conversations about God, where the primary thing was about that. Often, even science and logic is an example of finding what you want to find, seeking, finding what you're seeking. And people that even use science and logic as a, as a way of saying, you know, I can't quite trust God because of this logical part, um, I find if you dig into their story, there's unmet expectation, there's disappointment, there's hurt. And so they can find what they're looking for, yes, in science. But I've also met a lot of people that find what they're looking for and see God most clearly in science. And so let's be honest about our motives. Let's be honest about what's behind our journey. You will always tend to find what you're seeking. And so the reality is, and what I want to encourage you is, in your questions, you can be a critic or you can be a seeker. In your, in your questions, you can be a critic or a seeker. I want to encourage you to be a seeker. Be like the Magi. And if you find yourself in a place of deconstruction, keep going. Keep honestly seeking God. I believe that you will find him. I promise you'll find him because the Bible promises that. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Our belief will actually follow our action Uh, And this is counterintuitive for us, but it's true. Uh, Jesus himself talks about this. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Did you catch the process? Anybody who does, anybody who acts, anybody who moves, those are faith words, will find out, will understand in their heads whether my teaching is from God. So intellectual understanding actually comes after action. The Magi weren't out of sequence. 
They acted, and then God revealed more to them. I mean, imagine a person that studies apples. They know everything about apples. Uh, imagine, you know, a guy, he's an expert on apples, apples and he knows uh, objectively everything about the species, the trees that produce them, you know, Granny Smith apples and crab apples, and he can tell you all about them. He can even get into, like, levels of DNA. Um, let's call this guy Bob, and Bob did a, a PhD on apples, and he actually wrote his whole thesis, and you can buy his book. You know, he wrote a book on apples. And you can read everything you'd ever want to know about apples. But what if you also found out that, interestingly, Bob had never himself bobbed for apples? (laughs) He'd never actually tasted an apple. That would be strange. And so isn't it it possible that a three-year-old girl who picks an apple off an apple tree in the middle of July, takes a bite out of it. Immediately understands something more about apples than Bob does. For all his intellect, Bob's missed the point. An apple is to be enjoyed. It's to be tasted. It's to be experienced. There's words that that three-year-old could use to describe apples that Bob would never be able to use, no matter how much he studied them. It might seem like a kind of obvious story, but is it that obvious? The psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience, faith, action. Over and over again, we see this invitation through the word to actually move towards Jesus. And all of the right understanding we have will not necessarily mean that you move towards him. The, the chief priests and teachers of the law, regardless of the star that they received through the written word of God, did not actually move into action and move, let that move them towards Jesus. Jesus also says a chapter later in John chapter 8, he says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth. Again, we see the same principle. If you do this, if you move into action, if you put your trust, your faith in me, get out of your heads, then you will know in your head the truth. Carl Rayner, a few decades ago, um, he passed away in 1984, I believe, and uh, so I'm not sure when in his life he, he said this, but he already saw coming down the road in the Western world, he said, the, devite, the devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will cease to be anything at all. In a world of deconstruction, in a world where everybody is trying to tear down and dismantle every idea to the point of not believing in anything, Carl Rayner already saw that coming and said, The Christian of the future will be one who has experienced God, who trusts God, who acts on the level of understanding they have and doesn't let the intellect stop them from moving. And so at the end of the story in Matthew 2, we see that on coming to the house, the Magi, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They got on their knees. This is how Matthew starts his gospel with not the chief priests, not the religious leaders coming to Jesus with these pagan astrologers who had limited understanding actually moving in faith to the level that God had revealed to them. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, right before the whole thing ends, after he spent three years of ministry discipling 12 guys and 11 of them were left, It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Again, that word means to get prostrate and bend their knee to him, with him. What does it say there? Read those last three words. But some doubted. We see here, (laughs) the 11 disciples who just spent three years with Jesus didn't have it all figured out. They had questions. They had doubts. But what, what is true is that all 11 of them worshipped. All 11 of them at the end of, uh, after the resurrection, 
got on their knees, prostrate before God, and yet some of them were getting on their knees and they had doubts. They had questions. But their doubts and questions actually wasn't an enemy of faith. It was part of faith. I don't know what doubts and questions you have. I don't know uh, what experiences that you've had that are unmet. I don't know what cycle of faith you find yourself in, but I would encourage you, in your doubts and your questions, honestly seek God. Honestly seek God. God's not afraid of your doubts and questions. In fact, I read something this week that said the Bible is not primarily God answering humanity's questions about God. It's God asking questions and seeing how humanity responds. How do we respond to questions? How do we respond to doubts? I'm going to invite you, um, and this is probably going to feel a little bit uncomfortable, um, but it'll be less uncomfortable as we all do it. Um, Some, you know, certain church traditions have kneeling benches uh, in their rows, and, you know, we... You know, at our types of churches, we don't tend to do that. Um, and so we don't actually practice kneeling. We don't practice being prostrate. Uh, but we see this is the posture of Magi, even though they didn't have all the answers. And this was also the response of the disciples, even in the midst of their doubts, that they still got on their knees. Because got, getting on their knees is an acknowledgement that I don't have all the answers, that I might have some doubts, that I might be wrestling, but I'm going to put my faith, my trust, my weight into Jesus. And I'm going to trust him with everything else. No matter where I'm at in my journey, I'm still going to choose to bend my knee to Jesus. And so I'm going to invite us actually just for a minute here. Uh, if you are able, I know we're not all able, uh, but to turn around in your spots uh, that, that you are, I'm going to invite you to bend a knee, and you're going to face the other direction. You can do this at home if you're watching. Um, and I want you to bend a knee and just lean on your chair for a minute, and I want to pray with you. Uh, So would you uh, do that with me? I would invite you to do that. This is the posture of the Magi. This is the posture of the disciples. And if you're unable to physically do it, you can also take this posture in your heart. It's a heart posture. And sometimes physically moving moves our heart. One of my favorite prayers is in Mark 9 where there's a father who is just advocating to God. Um, He needs help. And he trusts that God can help him, but he's honest and he also has some doubts that God can help him. And he, um, this is his prayer. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. And remember, that's a, the word is faith. I faith, help my faith. That's what he's saying. I trust you, God, but help me trust you. So I invite you just to repeat after me. I believe, but help my unbelief. Say that again. I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I trust. Help in the areas I don't trust you. God, I doubt, but help me still to trust you. I just want to pray for us. Father, we know that we carry in this room doubts and questions. We don't have answers, and that should remind us that you are God and that we are not. Lord, thank you for the picture of the Magi who didn't know much, yet they doubted. Thank you for the picture of the disciples who knew way more than we did, and yet they doubted, and yet that did not stop either of them from bending their knee. And so, Lord, we join them this morning to bend our knee and to say, Jesus, you are king. We come to worship you. We come to trust you, to put our faith, to put our weight into you, even though we don't always understand. May you rewrite our stories in the same way that you wrote theirs. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So I don't know what action that God is inviting you to stake to take what step of faith Uh, but for each one of us he's moving us 
He's inviting us to move beyond just what we're thinking, what we're experiencing, to an action of faith, an action of trust, an action of seeking. And I pray that you would honestly seek him. Uh, That your intention would be to bend your knee no matter what your story is, no matter what doubts, what questions you have. You're in great company. If you have questions and doubts, you're in great company. Um, I am with you. Wait a second. The pastor has doubts? Yes, your pastor has doubts and questions. But I trust Jesus more than I trust my own questions and my own doubts. Um, And so as as we close the service, we always have prayer teams available. Uh, That might be just a practical step you want to take this morning to invite someone to pray with you and for you. Uh, So we invite you forward. Uh, But let me pray for you uh, now. Lord, we thank you again for the example of the Magi. these pagans that have so much to teach us that you showed them a star and that was enough to get them moving to get them seeking and Lord we have been given far more and yet we find ourselves just standing and so I pray Lord that we would that you would increase our faith that you would increase our trust and Lord I pray for each person uh, in this room with their questions and their doubts. And uh, Lord, we know that those things come from honest places, honest experiences. Uh, We thank you that you're not threatened by them. We thank you for the examples of the disciples who worshipped you even though they'd been with you for three years and had doubts. We thank you for the example of David who over and over again is wrestling with what's happening and how does he understand what's happening and yet still believes and still trusts that you are the one worth following and worshiping. Lord, may we be like them. May we not be like the chief priests, the religious leaders who had intellectual knowledge but didn't move an inch and didn't move in faith. Lord, we want to be people of faith. So we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you long to entrust yourself to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, Thank you for coming. Uh, Looking forward to next week as we look at the example of Herod.